for digital pathology, you advocate for value-based reimbursement. How can you create evidence necessary to justify this reimbursement, especially in this paradigm of value-based instead of just a fee-per-service-based? That's indeed a key question. And I think it's really important that we think about that there's limited work done so far to support the understanding of the health economic impacts and patient improvements. So I think we need to articulate what the services is that we provide and what is it then that it's uniquely provided to the individual patients. And we need to identify the data that we need to figure this out and to make sure that not only the fee goes for the technology component of the code, but also to the physician's fee. I think we should be defining key endpoints and outcomes and that we have to outline these relevant to the demonstration of the value add of the technology. Learn about the newest digital pathology trends in science and industry, meet the most interesting people in the niche, and gain insights relevant to your own projects. Here is where pathology meets computer science. You are listening to the Digital Pathology Podcast with your host, Dr. Alexandra Zhurov. Hi, everyone. Today's episode is sponsored by Visiofarm, Denmark-based leader in artificial intelligence-driven image analysis, tissue mining, and precision pathology. And my guest is Esther Abels. If you follow the regulatory status of digital pathology, you know she is the person behind the FDA clearance of the first digital pathology system for primary diagnosis. Today, we will be talking about the complicated maze of digital pathology reimbursement and how to align it with its value. Hi Esther, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you, Alex. How are you? Good, good. I'm fine as well. Let's start with introducing yourself to the listeners. Yeah. So, yeah, as you said, I'm Esther. I'm Esther Abels. Um, I'm originally from the Netherlands and I moved to the U.S. about uh, two and a half years ago. Currently, I'm the Chief Clinical and Regulatory Officer at Physiofarm. My background is in biomedical health science, really focusing already on uh, patients and human well-being. And that's something that motivates me. And that's also how, how I got involved in, in this industry. Actually, I started uh, my career in pharma, where I was responsible for uh, developing drug clinical trials and executing those as well and getting them getting the drugs registered on different markets in different uh, parts of the world. Um, it's really intrigued me that I was able to get drugs on the market and help patients to feel better. That's an important thing for me to, to work on and, and that motivates me to uh, wake up every morning and, and do my job actually, because I don't see it really as a job. I also see it as a hobby. I really have this motivation to, to help patients. After I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, I joined uh, Philips, where I was uh, joining the digital pathology departments. And we got the challenge to get the whole slide imaging device on the markets in different countries uh, over the world. 
And the biggest hurdle was, of course, in the US. Well, I say, of course, but it, it was in the US because mm -hmm. there it was regarded as a high risk device, class three. And um, yeah, we, we tried to get that reclassified to a class two device, which which we accomplished. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm still very proud that we did that as a collective uh, community, so to say. So with different uh, pathologists, different vendors, as well as of course with uh, the team at uh, at Philips. So that's really something that um, yeah that I'm very proud of that we got that and that that started to unlock the potential of what digital pathology can bring in the world of medicine. Um, I also give you a little bit of peek of my of myself of my private life because uh, to unwind I I sport a lot. I like sports and uh, in the past, uh, yeah, in the past I've been doing uh, rugby. I uh, played also for the national team and I really enjoyed it a lot. Really? I do miss for it. the national team? You played rugby for the national team? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, I even uh, was part of the world championships and it was it was amazing. You no kidding. Speak, <laughs> yeah, you speak, you live and dream rugby. <laughs> So yeah, and obviously I can't do it anymore. So now I just do sports to uh, to unwind after uh, day work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the Philips clearance, this was the milestone of digital pathology. And whenever I look up the details of the clearance, it's your name on the letters to the FDA. You were the regulatory person who uh, contributed in this regulatory uh, area to making this happen. So totally something to be proud of and it's going to be on the records forever <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank you you are also the co-author of the recent paper aligning reimbursement for digital pathology with its value in the journal of precision medicine so when i think of reimbursement in pathology the first thing that comes to my mind is ihc you have a defined test marker, IHC marker, or a panel of markers, improving or enabling the diagnosis of a particular disease. Um, this has an established pricing, but digital pathology is not a single test. Let's start with explaining where reimbursement can be applied in digital pathology. Yeah. Yeah, good question. And I also would like to point out that I'm uh, very happy that we did this with the entire team to to author this paper, because I think there is a need to better understand indeed how can you apply reimbursement in digital pathology and what is needed to really drive this field forward. Because at this moment, digital pathology can use the same existing reimbursement codes that have been around for pathology huh, for using using the microscope actually. And you can use all these different codes for reimbursement as usual. For example, if you review a case, you can apply a different CPT, the current procedural terminology codes, that is, um, for the current procedural terminology. And um, they also have within the system, within the CPT system and, and um, they, Sorry. So within the CPT system, you have a technical component as well as a professional component. You can apply that in digital pathology too. And a professional component is really, as it says, for the healthcare provider, the, the supervision and interpretation, for example. And the technical component is really applying to all the 
supplies, the equipment that you're using. And um, if you look at that, then you also have the global components. And that is actually when there's no division of the cost associated with a medical service, because the service, for example, was provided by a single entity. Um, if you then indeed look into we have with this background information, you can think about the CPT codes that are related to pathology are in the ranges um, from 80,000 to 89,999. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's a long range. And they can use, so pathologists can use that code. Um, but if you now look at digital pathology itself, um, you can only, and pathology also, by the way, you can only use one code per test. So if you have, for example, um, an IHC stain, as you were saying, then you can use a code, which is, everybody knows that, 88360 or 88361, but you can only build that once. So you use either one of them. And uh, if you, for example, uh, have stained the slide and you use the billing codes and you find out that the staining is of insuffic insufficient quality to make a diagnosis for a patient, which, which happens quite often, I think about 30% of the cases are stained incorrectly, then you have to restain. Well, you first have to recut, then you have to restain. You go through the entire process of waiting time, and then you cannot bill again for that same stain. So you can only bill it bill it once. Um, and and that's something that that I think is important to realize that you can only use a code once. However, you can add codes. Uh, on top of each other. So that's the add-ons of codes. So you can say we now use an e stain, now we use the IHC stain, etc. Um, and the distinctions also, what I would like to point out, uh, because you specifically asked about IHC stains, there is between 88360 and 88361. That 88361 includes that you can use computer-aided uh, assistive technology to provide a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So let us take a step back and explain how reimbursement works in the U.S. We're talking about the U.S. reimbursement system in general. You mentioned the CPT codes. It's a set of codes that can be billed. Who is making those codes? Who is billing those codes? Who is paying later for uh, use of those tests with the codes? Could you briefly explain that? Yeah. Yeah, so, and that's exactly um, what I think is important to realize that there are so many different entities involved with regards to this coding. And the coding already, by the way, exists for decades. Um, I think it was first published somewhere in the 60s, in the 1960s, um, just mainly to um, code procedures, mainly surgical procedures. And thereafter, it started to uh, be adopted by the Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services, huh? CMS, as we know them. And then they started to use that also for insurances and, and reimbursements. So how uh, today the system works is that you have three categories in CPT codes. Category one is really about the medical procedure or services provided by a healthcare provider. Category two is really about supplemental tracking codes. Uh, that's really about performance measurements. 
And then category three is really about temporary tracking codes for new and emerging technologies. And that's that's why I also mentioned this because this this could be something that we can look into. What I think what would be good to realize with new categories is that they're released, for example, twice a year. And they have to be reviewed and accepted before you can get uh, from CMS a uh, typical allocation of what will be reimbursed. Um, then with regards to the responsibility of who modifies and updates codes, etc. Well, it's everybody can ask for a code. Any individual healthcare provider, for example, hospital, third party payer, etc. can submit an application for a code. Um, then there is a staff uh, within um, the AMA, AMA um, and that, that is um, the American boards that they can review the codes and then they will um, collect information and review if it has already been requested before, then they will accept it to be um, further justified whether you can get a reimbursement if there's sufficient evidence and then they refer that application to an editorial pan panel which have a few members in there which are experts for example as appropriate um, so there's another stakeholder category there and then they can approve those codes and especially um, I think regarding um, category one which is for the procedure codes and can be true for the new technologies. Um, the, the panel really has to vote whether they believe that there's sufficient evidence um, that it will fulf, uh, it will be sufficient to get a to get reimbursements. And once that's done, then of course we need to have all the administration done that it gets into the system, etc. This entire process can take about 18 to 24 months, so that's a long time. Having said that, that's that's one category um, that you have to think of. Had the CMS um, itself, then the AMA, as I mentioned, then the panel with experts, but then you also have the payers themselves. So once CMS says yes, uh, this can be reimbursed, then there are payers. They all have different policies, how to apply the codes, how much they will reimburse. So CMS gives a certain amount but payers will agree with their specific customers um, on what they reimburse to their customers based on their contracts. So in conclusion, actually, if you want to be good or get a better contract with a payer, you have to show that your device, uh, for example, in digital technology, your device and your procedure is better. So if you then even want to implement it in your own lab, you have to show within your own standard of care that, that you're better. And you have to show that to all these stakeholders because they're all influencers. Mm -hmm. So you say you have to show that it's better. So you basically have to justify in front of all the stakeholders why you would even what why you even should get money back for this test or for procedure performed on a digital device so when it comes to digital technologies um, and digital pathology specifically what would justify reimbursement yeah that's actually it's it's coming down to most of the time to reducing costs though 
also in our paper, we discuss that we should try to move away from that by showing more the evidence-based value. And I can think about like three categories that you can use to justify reimbursement. And that's, for example, the practice impacts, the clinical impacts, and the economic impacts. If you think about practice impacts, it's more towards improved patient experience. Clinical impact is more related to improved patient outcome. And the economic impact is more reduction of downstream costs. So that's what you could use to justify to um, have for digital technologies and also in general for digital pathology to apply for a code and also get a code. There are some other initiatives also within CMS, for example, they have like new technology add-on payment system, the NTAP. And um, a good example of that is they had a um, device approved and it's from uh, viz.ai uh, to analyze stroke images. So it's radiology related, but I think that's that's a good technique that we or technology that we can use as an um, as an example to show that it's justified to come up with new digital te technology that, for example, can reduce in time to treatment for stroke and can um, improve the clinical outcomes of patients. And we can apply the same analogy in, in digital pathology. Another example, and that's also what we discuss in the in the paper, is a PLA uh, code, a proprietary uh, lab code, and uh, proprietary lab application codes. And that's a payment assignment process where you can include all your R&D costs, I would say, because the PLA coding system allows you for creation of codes specific to particular offerings applications. And that refers back to what I mentioned earlier, is that you could instead of doing all the add-ons, you can say, no, this is an entire application code um, for the entire application that we're using to improve the clinical outcome of, of uh, for a patient. Then there are two other things that, that I, I do uh, uh, want to mention is um, and now with also with with digital pathology, we're seeing more and more that we're going into the pharma um, business as well by saying we can be a kind of a, a tool to support companion diagnostic or even we can become a companion diagnostic to predict patient outcome. And if we will get a companion diagnostic, then that justifies already straight away to get a code. Just like the breakthrough designation uh, for devices, if the FDA gives you as a very novel device that you're specific, that you can improve patients' outcome, that you can improve healthcare, you really have to show that you're better than the standards uh, care. Then um, you will get, and, and that bill was just implemented, then you can get at least two years already a code. And that relates to what I was saying, that it takes about two years to get a new code when you apply for it. And um, so that actually supports innovation and in this digital era, we go so fast eh, with, with developing new devices that you could use um, that and use that as your justification. And um, yeah, just, just to say is that I think we focused in the past too much on data collection and storage with, within digital pathology. And that really 
yeah, actually it's it's uh, underestimating or underselling what the potential value of digital pathology has. We need to start thinking about the value. For example, can you standardize? And we know that H&E staining is difficult to standardize. The CAP doesn't have guidelines really for that. So, but using digitization, using applications in your pre-analytics to analyze how well your stain is over time, um, if it's fluctuating, use it, for example, in proficiency testing, you can improve your quality and with that also improve turnaround, turnaround time, uh, reducing maybe reconfirmation testing uh, for patients. So I think that is, that is where we should focus on on, on those values. And um, there are three categories, I would say, and that's one is in the pre-analytics workflow, we can show the value. The second one is really that um, we can perform now analysis that were previously impossible with traditional pathology, That's something that you, for example, couldn't have seen with the human eye or what I mentioned before, towards companion diagnostics that you can start um, stratifying information and inform possible treatment ideas. And there's the third one is that really it support improvements in the clinical care at a higher level at the health system or even the population level. Um, so that, that's a long story. And I would like to say in conclusion, in short, it's really reimbursement is justified when we focus on the needs where it provides then new value. And then we need to align on the evidence needs for this value, that it's clinical utility and cost-effective tools and use then the engagement with the guideline bodies huh, because they drive the decision-making on coding and the key stakeholders and use patients also who can support these guidelines and uh, support coverage and payments. Um, for digital pathology, you advocate for value-based reimbursement. How can you create evidence necessary to justify this reimbursement, especially in this uh, paradigm of value-based instead of just fee-per-service-based? Yeah, and, and, and that's indeed uh, also a key question. And I think it's it's really important that we have think about it, about um, that there's limited work done so far to support the understanding of the health, health and health economic impacts and, and uh, patient improvements. So I think what we need to start thinking about is to articulate what the services is that we provide and what is it then that it's uniquely provided to the individual patients. And we need to identify what is the data uh, that we need to figure this out and to make sure that not only the fee goes to the technology huh, for the, the components, the technology component of the code, but also to the physician's fee. So I think what we should be doing is defining key endpoints and outcomes, and that we have to outline these relevant to the demonstration of the value add of the technology. And I can think about, um, evaluate some improvements in responses to therapy or delay in diseases, uh, disease progressions, those are useful. Or think about benefit risks assessments, um, health, econo health economics like cost effectiveness data, and then use the different stakeholders to uh, in, in the hospital system to define what is for them important 
uh, and what is for them the key value in, um, in those drivers and those decision makings. And, and then you can identify those key endpoints. And another one is to really compare it to the current care paradigm. And I can think of, for example, that you can look into existing care decision-making and treatment um, patterns in, in charts that are already there or claims analysis and the use codes uh, in, in the payer uh, databases. So you can do an analysis on that and identify key data sets where you believe you could um, make a difference. And then utilize, for example, those new reimbursement codes um, and start uh, suggesting those and really also pursue that you get those new CPT codes. And, and, and why I'm saying that is that I think if we then identify on those separate codes, you can start to saying if we combine them instead of add-on codes, you can use the PLA coding system, which really creates new value for, for digital pathology. So if we took um, an, a tangible example, let's take uh, an image analysis test that could potentially get reimbursed. What would be the road to take it to actually obtain this reimbursement? Could you walk the listeners through the process with a tangible example? Um, I'd like to pick a um, application that we recently have put on the market in, in Europe. Uh, that's a metastasis detection application. Um, it's also available, uh, of course, for research use in, in the US, um, not for diagnostic purposes. I have to say that, of course. Um, but we could we could approach that in in a in a way as using, for example, that you can have a technical component as well as the pathologist's components, right? Because in defining metastasis, you need to review a lot of negative slides in, for, from lymph nodes. And it could range, even in one case, it could range from a few to over 60 slides in a case. Finding then that one slide with the metastasis is sufficient to diagnose the patient has metastasis but you still have to review all the other slides. So this is very cumbersome. And with the Metastasis app, you can automate it and save time. So coming back to what I've said before, that reducing cost is not the only added value of digital pathology. The value proposition really lies in adding the value to care. So using then this app example, we could say, okay, the software, uh, we, we all know that, that that's not specifically for this app, but software could be more precise, more consistent than a person. And also moreover, software doesn't really get tired and this could increase quality. So that's something. Then we could add that it says it results in faster turnaround time of this particular case because the software can run, is, is diagnosing something else or maybe doing something else. And then you already have the results back when you really assess the, um, the patient. Even more with this faster turnaround time for this particular case, it also could result in faster turnaround times of other cases because now the pathologist doesn't have to spend a lot of time on this tedious case. The pathologist can also spend more time on a more complex case. So reducing also therefore that complex case for that patient, uh, the time of getting a diagnosis. This then 
goes, uh, if you then look downstream, then the patient knows earlier that they have a metastasis or the other patient for this particular case had, knows early what kind of disease it has. And with that also, and, and also we know probably uh, more accurate, right? That, that's something also that we just said more precise. Then we could show that also there we have an earlier access to treatments, earlier patient management, and as such, you have uh, shorter treatments times, for example, and you improve really the patient care. And with that, you could think about using then again, the entire PLA code specifically for um, this particular offering. And um, that is, I think that you can use these type of endpoints for this specific app um, and highlights that the um, that, that we have some limitations in the current care paradigm, but what we can also provide as a reward, as an incentive, and what unique benefits applications could bring in digital pathology. Mm -hmm. This reimbursement and uh, insurance and healthcare system in the US is quite a complicated maze of different dependencies. Um, from my perspective, what you just told me is the thing that um, the thing that uh, the thing where reimbursement can be justified has to be better than what we have so far. But to con and we have to convince a lot of stakeholders that it actually is better um, and gather enough evidence. Thank you so much for uh, taking us through this maze and explaining this. I obviously will um, will um, link the paper uh, that you co-authored uh, in the show notes. And thanks so much for being my guest. Yeah, thank you. It, it was my privilege to, to be your guest and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Have a great day, Esther. Thanks, you too. I want to thank Visiofarm for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about their offer, please visit their website at visiofarm.com and I will include this address in the show notes. Thank you for listening. For more great digital pathology resources, visit the Digital Pathology Consulting website and subscribe to our newsletter on digitalpathologyconsulting.com. After subscribing, you will get access to the free Digital Pathology Crash Course, which will help you start working on your digital pathology projects immediately. Talk to you in the next episode.